Guys, let's dive into our message for today. When I say the word worship, what comes to your mind? Woo! Shouting, singing, singing, listening to some guy run his mouth for too long. <laughs> Lord's Supper. Now, worship is and should be all of those things. Reading. But as we're going to see today, worship is something so much more. William Temple said this. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscious by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, and to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Richard Foster said, to worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know and to feel and to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of gathered community. Worship is so much more than what we just do here on Sunday mornings. But worship should be everything that we do every day of our lives as we live to honor and glorify and praise God. This is what you and I were created for. This is what you and I were designed for, to live lives of worship to God. This is week three of our series, looking at this complicated, complex guy called David. David was a poet, he was a prophet, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. He was a king and he was a man after God's own heart. We have seen David stand up and fight against Goliath, and we learned that we can fight like David when we put our trust not in ourselves, but when we put our trust in God. And then last week we saw this friendship that David and Jonathan had, and we learned that we can love like Jonathan loved when we put others before ourselves. And today we're going to fast forward in David's life a little bit. At this point that we're going to be looking at today, Jonathan and Saul have both died, and David has now become the king of Israel. And this is the scene that we get from, our, uh, our, from Scripture today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, 2 Samuel is in the Old Testament, which is on the left side of your Bible. If you're looking for it, it's towards the front. 2 Samuel comes right after 1 Samuel. Um, which isn't always the case in the Bible. Sometimes they jump around a little bit. But uh, uh, first, or 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, if you are in the middle of the Bible in Psalms or in, in Proverbs or something like that, you probably need to go back towards the front of the Bible. If you're in Genesis or Exodus, you need to go back towards the back a little bit. It's kind of in between those different areas there. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. Please, please take one as a gift. Um, you know, we, we want you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read for yourself. And so if you don't have one, we have some there on the back table in the hallway. Please pick one up and, and, and take that home with you as a gift from us. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to start there in verse 12. It says, Now... King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. 
So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So this is our text, but let's go back and fill in some of the context. Because there's some stuff here that maybe you don't know what it is, all right? Maybe you're unfamiliar with what the things that we're talking about. So the first thing that we have here is we have the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, all right? Now, this was Israel's most sacred treasure. It was a golden box that God had instructed Moses uh, to build while they were traveling through the wilderness on their way to the promised land after he had rescued them from Egypt. Now, this was different than the ark that God told Noah to build, which was a boat that housed all the animals, right? So it's an ark and not an ark, okay? <laughs> it's different, okay? Uh, it probably looked a little something like this. Uh, Heather, if you go to the next slide there. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen Indiana Jones, right? Uh, you know, we look at this and we're like, oh man, it's just a movie, right? Steven Spielberg didn't know what he's talking about. But when you read the description of what the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, uh, it probably looked pretty close to this. <laughs> now, the rest of the movie is kind of crazy, right? You know, you probably want to take any truth from that. But it probably looked something like this, right? A, a golden box that God had instructed Moses to build. And inside this box, it had the Ten Commandments uh, that... God gave to Moses uh, on the mountain, and he brought down the instructions for the law. Uh, in it was also a jar full of manna, which uh, manna was the bread that God provided the Israelites every single morning that they were wandering in the wilderness. Uh, he instructed them to put a jar of it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, this bread was different. Um, you know, the manna that they got every morning would go bad every evening. But this that was in the jar that was in the Ark of the Lord, um, it didn't go bad ever. It was continuous. Also, part of Aaron's staff was inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. Uh, and it was a symbol of the, the priestly authority. Uh, because the Ark of the Lord would sit inside the tabernacle uh, and later on in the temple, uh, inside the Holy of Holies, and this is where the priest of Israel would go and atone or, or make right the sins of the people. They would offer sacrifices, and it was on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, that they would offer the blood sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. So it was to be treated in the highest respect. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of God was to go before the Israelites as they go into battle. It was the center of worship where the high priest would atone for the sins of the people. The Ark was to remind the people of Israel of the covenant that God had made with them, the promises that God had made to them. But this Ark was not an idol and it was not to be a good luck charm. But unfortunately, both of those became true for the Israelite people at many different times. Many different times they treated it like a good luck charm, or they treated it as an idol. 
Now, if you remember when Israel was coming into the promised land, they were being led by Joshua. And maybe you've heard the story of the city of Jericho. It was the Ark of the Covenant that went out before the people as they marched around the city for seven days. People thought, though, they could harness the power and use it for their own uses. That was the basis of the Indiana Jones movie, right? The Germans, the Nazis thought that they could harness this as a weapon, right? The Ark of the Covenant, they could use it as a weapon. Well, that's exactly what many other people in the Old Testament thought too, including the Philistines. And the Philistines went to war to get this weapon that Israel had, but they didn't understand that any power that was associated with the Ark of the Covenant was simply, uh, simply by God's power and was used as he saw fit. It wasn't a weapon to be yielded by men. So here in our passage in 2 Samuel 6, now that David is king, he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem. Okay, It had been away from the city of Jerusalem And he is bringing it back to the city of Jerusalem, where it belongs. He wants to reestablish the national worship of Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. He wants to establish this national worship of God, which is what the people of Israel were supposed to be doing. And what we see time and time again through the Old Testament is they would turn away from God and go and worship other gods um, and turn away from him time and time again. So David wants to bring the people back to worship God. And so he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to God. He wants to centralize Israel's religious and political life. And at first, David is too hasty bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And he brings it up on a cart, and it is disaster. That's the beginning of chapter 12. And so he slows down, and he brings it up as God had instructed him to. And as he is carrying it in and moving the ark, as God had originally told them to, this small convoy of people turns into this massive parade, and David is thrilled. And he strips down to nothing but a linen ephod, which has been like an undergarment that he had on. Um, But he was taking off all of his kingly garments, right? He was king now, and so he he had all these robes and all of these things that showed his royalty. And so he is taking these things off so that David doesn't get the attention, but so that God alone gets the attention. And so David dances with all of his might in this, as this parade's grand marshal. And the important thing to, to notice here is, is that David was setting aside everything that showed that he was king. His royal robes, his crown, anything else that showed that he was a king to give all the attention, all the praise, all the glory and worship to God and God alone. It's a beautiful picture Because David not only was worshiping, but you have all these singers and musicians of every kind. You have the priests that are actually carrying the ark. You have gatekeepers who are going and clearing the path before them. uh, And the priests that were making sacrifices along the way. Everyone was joining in and celebrating and worshiping as the presence of God, the representation of God's presence was coming back into Jerusalem. 
everyone is joining in. It wasn't just David. It was all of Israel was joining in. And it seems that only Michal, David's wife, who was Saul's daughter, is the only one who failed to join in and failed to understand what David's worship was all about. She sees her husband, who's taken off all of his royal robes and is dancing, and she sees it as foolishness and him being undignified in his wild worship to God. And McCall despises him for it. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering to the city of David, that was Jerusalem, McCall, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David, uh, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a, a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a, a cake of raisins uh, to each person in all the crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. And all of the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half-naked in full, full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So here we have David celebrating, worshiping God with all of his might and worshiping that God was doing all the things that he was doing. But not everyone had the same heart that David had. David's heart was turned towards God. But his wife, McCall's heart, was only turned inwardly. She couldn't believe that David would make such a fool, not only of himself, but of their family and of the throne. But David teaches McCall and us that our worship should be directed to God and God alone. Look at the next verse in 21. David said to McCall, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. So David corrects McCall. She was only concerned about her outward appearance. How did this look on our family? You've taken off all of your royal robes and you're dancing in the streets in front of all of these other people. You're bringing dishonor to our family, she thought. But David, on the other hand, was worshiping God by humbling himself so that God alone got the attention. There's a key here, I think, that we should pick up on when we are looking to have a heart of worship, a heart that is turned toward God. We can ask ourselves these questions. Are we concerned 
about getting the attention, the praise, or are we concerned about making sure that God receives the praise? Do we want the attention or are we directing the attention towards God? McCall was only concerned about getting the attention. David, though, was concerned about God getting the attention. David said that he would become even more undignified than this, that he would become even more humiliated than this if it meant that God would be praised. He would humble himself even more if it meant that God would be honored and worshiped. Man, this is the same attitude that Paul had. He he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 4, Paul says this. He says, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, Paul says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul, like David, had reason to get attention, to receive praise, or as Paul says, to have confidence in the flesh. I mean, David was the king of Israel, right? He should have had some sort of honor. It would have been very easy for him to think, man, I should be getting some of this praise. I'm the one that's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Man, I've been doing all this hard work. Paul says, look, If anybody has reason to be confident in the flesh, I do. He says, man, I followed the law perfectly, without fault. I've done everything. He says, but I consider it all loss. I consider it garbage that I may know Christ. Paul, like David, had the same mindset that he would become even more undignified He would consider all that he accomplished loss, garbage, like John the Baptist did when Jesus came. Remember what John said? He had gotten a bunch of people's attention, and they were asking him questions about if he was the Messiah, if he was the one that was coming, and he said, no, man, there's one coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then he told his disciples, he said, I must decrease so that he must Increase. I must become less so that Jesus can become greater. Friends, our worship is not about us. Your worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. I believe it was Francis Chan who said, somebody came up to him after worship one Sunday and said, man, I really didn't like worship today. And 
Francis responded, well, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. So often I fear that we have tried to take God's place. We, like McCall, are only concerned about ourselves. Worship is not about us. Our worship is to and for God. God is the object of our worship. David said, it is before the Lord that I dance with all of my might. It is before the Lord that I became even more undignified than this. And I fear far too often we have misunderstood who the object of our worship is to be. We have fallen for the same sin that McCall fell for and the same sin that really Adam and Eve fell for. We try to make ourselves to be the center of our worship. We try to make ourselves to be God. We try to make ourselves to be the object of worship. Friends, you're not. You're not the center of the world. The earth doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. We are not the objects of our worship. God and God alone should be. Now here at Journey Church, we put it like this. We say that every day we joyfully give God the best of everything that we are and everything that we have. And we're going to break this sentence down a little bit for the rest of our message today. And the words I want to focus on first are those two words, give God. God is the object of our worship. We must decrease so that he can increase. We must become even more undignified. We must humble ourselves and we must become less so that God can have all of the praise, all of the honor, all of the attention, all of the worship. We give God the best of everything we are. If God is not the object of our worship, then we have severely missed the mark. Now, there's some key questions that if we're going to check our hearts to make sure that we are giving God the glory and the worship and the praise, if we want to make sure that our worship is being directed towards him and not towards ourselves, we can see if we are asking or saying these things or even thinking things like this. Man, who are all these people coming to church? Just tell them to go somewhere else. Man, my life group isn't taking care of my needs. Man, I didn't feel the music today. If only they would do it like this, it would be better. I'm not being fed, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Friends, if we are thinking or saying these types of things, then we really need to do a reality check on our hearts to see who the object of our worship is. Is it us? Or are we giving the worship to God? If we find ourselves saying or thinking these things, then we may need to do a heart check. God and God alone should be the object of our worship. We give God not ourselves, we give God the best of everything we are and have. We give him the praise and the glory. David understood that. Paul understood that. McCall didn't. She thought that she and her family 
and the throne should have been the center and the object of worship. But David understood that it was before the Lord. We give God. Not only does David teach us that God is the object of a worship, but David also teaches us that worship is supposed to be a full contact, full participation sport. Worship is not a spectator event that we sit in the stands in. David and many others in Israel, it says all of Israel, with the exception of McCall, (laughs) all of Israel jump in with both feet and worship God with everything that they are. Verse 15 says there that he, David, and all of Israel were bringing up the ark. They were all involved in this. They were all maybe doing different things, but they were all joining in this worship. It was a full contact, full participation thing. So let's take a look at the things that we do on Sunday morning to start with. When we gather for worship, and let's see how all of us can be involved in the things that we do for worship on Sunday morning. There are a few things that we do every single Sunday morning when we gather, right? We sing, we study God's word, we partake in the Lord's Supper, we give of our tithes and our offerings, and we connect with each other. Those are some of the things that we do every single week, every single Sunday, week in and week out. Man, worship is a team sport. It's not an individual competition. When we sing, we sing songs about God, and we sing songs to God. And man, let me tell you, there is power when we all, not just our worship team, but when we all are joining in and singing these words to God and about God. Even if you're like me and you can't carry a tune in a bucket, there is power when we are singing together because we are testifying together that we all believe these words that we're singing. And man, there is power when we are chanting, when we are singing these words together. There's unification that happens when we are singing together. Whether you can sing or not, we sing together. It takes all of us together. We sing out. We need each other. When we study We are all studying together. We are all learning together. And we are all being called to action together from God's word. When we take communion, it's not just individuals that we're taking communion. We take time and examine ourselves and we repent of our sins as individuals. But man, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection when we partake in the Lord's Supper when we do that together. Man, there's power in that. There's power when we say together with our actions that we believe in the body and the blood of Jesus. We believe in the sacrifice that he has made for us. And there's power when us as God's people are joined together at this moment, partaking in the Lord's Supper. And when we're remembering together and we're proclaiming together that Jesus was real and that he died and that he rose again. That's what we're saying when we take of the Lord's Supper together. And there's power when we worship together. There's power when we fellowship 
together, when we connect with each other, when we talk with one another. So, man, I encourage you, don't just come in and sit down on Sunday morning because we need each other and we need to connect with each other on Sunday morning. So take time, the times that we have before worship. Part of the reason that we do a five-minute break in the middle of worship is so when you come in late, you know who I'm talking about, right? You come in late, uh, you're kind of forced to, to talk with people, right? We encourage you to get up and introduce yourself, invite people to lunch. We encourage you to connect with each other because that, it's not just about being social, but God has made us to be together. Man, you can't do this life on your own. We need each other. Uh, connect with each other before worship, during the five-minute break, and after worship. Man, I love one of the things that I love the most is before worship starts and after worship's over to see you guys in the lobby just talking, just connecting, just enjoying being in each other's presence. Man, I love watching that. We need each other. We need each other to connect with each other. We all contribute together in our tithes and our offerings to the work that God is doing in and through Journey Church. And it takes all of us joining in to make the ministry that God is doing in Journey Church to happen. And and that doesn't even include all of the other serving that happens on Sunday morning, right? The setting up, the making coffee, the welcoming people, the helping clean the bathrooms, the running the slides, the leading worship, the teaching kids, the cleaning up. All of these things are part of what we do as worship to God on Sunday mornings. And it's not we, I mean, it's we, it's not I or me. We joyfully Give God the best of everything that we are and everything that we have. But notice those first two words in our value statement. We say that every day we joyfully give God the best. We don't say that every Sunday we give God the best. We say every day. Now, I don't know about you, but every day means Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday Sometimes, no, it means always Friday and Saturday and Sunday, right? There's not a day that's excluded from every day. Every day, we joyfully give God the best of everything that we are and have. Every day, our worship to God is not confined to this room. It's not confined to Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Every day means that we are giving God the best of everything in our lives. We are living lives that are pleasing to God, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day. You guys getting that yet? Every day. We joyfully give God the best. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Your bodies, your whole self, every part of you. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he tells us how to do that. To not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you go and read the rest of Romans chapter 12, he talks about how we do that together as the church, as the body. Because we need each other, we are better together. Our worship 
to God is us every day offering our whole self, our bodies, as living sacrifices to God. Our worship to God should be our whole self. We say that the best of everything that we are and have, okay? That's all of us, right? Everything that we are and everything that we have. That's everything that makes up who we are. We give the best of that to God every day joyfully. We give God the best joyfully every day. Paul tells us how to do that by not being conformed to the power of the pattern of this world. We don't do, we don't think, we don't speak, we don't work, we don't parent, we don't spouse, we don't live like the world does. We live differently than the world does. We are spouses differently. We work differently than the world works. We parent differently than the world parents. We neighbor differently than the world neighbors. We are to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what the will of God is, his good and perfect will. We are not to be conformed. We look and sound different. Scripture calls us to live as aliens and strangers, live as foreigners in this world. We live lives that are pleasing to God. This is worship. Worship is not just on Sunday mornings, but our worship to God should be every day, living lives that are pleasing to him, living and working as witnesses for Jesus with our words and our actions. It's at home loving our wives as Jesus has loved the church. It's guiding and leading our families to know and to follow Jesus. It's every day joyfully giving God the best of all that we are and best of all that we have to God. And we can only do that when we are trusting that Jesus is all that we need. And when we are being transformed by who he is and what he has done for us. And David teaches us that worship, our worship, whether it's Sunday mornings or Monday mornings, should be directed to God and God alone. We must humble ourselves in order to do that. We must take off all the things that that give us attention that draw the attention to ourselves, and we must become even more undignified and consider them all loss and garbage so that Christ, so that God receives the praise. We must become less so that God alone is worshipped. This is a full contact team sport. And it takes all of us participating together. Worship is a lifestyle and not an event that we attend. So, when you look at your life, when you look at your worship, who's getting the praise? Is it you? Or like Oliver said, is it God? Right? God is the object of our worship. It isn't you and it isn't me. It's God. Journey Church, let's learn to worship like David. 
Let's become even more undignified. Let's live lives that are every day joyfully giving God the best of everything that we are and everything that we have. Let's offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. And let's learn to worship like David did. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these examples of David. We thank you for the example of Paul, of Jesus, and so many others that have gone before us that have shown us that our worship should be directed toward you alone because you alone are worthy. And Father, this is the reason that we were created, to worship you. And worship isn't confined to what our imagination thinks of just singing songs or just showing up on Sunday morning, but worship should be every part of our lives, the way that we work, the way that we parent, the way that we are neighbors, the way that we are friends, the way that we are co-workers, the way that we are spouses. Every part of our life should be lived in worship to you. So Father, help us to not be conformed to this pattern of this world anymore, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can offer our bodies, we can offer our lives, we can offer everything that we are and have in worship to you every day joyfully. And we thank you that you have given us your one and only son to, to pay for our sins, to pay for our idolatry, to pay for our trying to put ourselves in your place. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that has made you king once again. So, Father, help us to make you king of our lives, of our families, of our church. And help us to show the rest of the world that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us to live lives of worship to you. Father, we thank you for the example of David. Help us to learn from him. We ask all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, today maybe you find yourselves not so much like David, but maybe you find yourself like McCall. And maybe you have been the object of your worship in your life. Friends, I want you to know that God has created you for so much more. And God and God alone is worthy of worship. And anything or anyone else that we try to put in its place, whether it's ourselves, whether it's other people, whether it's stuff, any of those things that we try to put in his place, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry isn't just worshiping little idols, but it's putting anything in God's place. A.W. Tozer said this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overact of worship has taken place. Friends, if you've put other things in God's place as the object of worship, won't you come today and humble yourself, repenting of your sins? And maybe you need to worship God for the first time by giving your life to him and repenting and being baptized. And say, today I'm going to start living, not for myself anymore, but I'm going to start living for God. I'm going to start worshiping him with my life. Man, if you're ready to be baptized today or you want to talk about what that means, I'm going to be out in the lobby in just a minute. I'd love to talk with you today. For those of us that already have, who are already followers of Jesus, we invite you to join us in this time of the Lord's Supper, this time of communion. 
And this is a time for us to repent of our continued idolatry. It's a time for us to repent of putting other things in God's place, whether it's ourselves or other stuff. And so when you're ready, let's worship God together. Let's take time to remember the sacrifice that is paid for our sins. The bread reminds us of his body and the cup reminds us of his blood that Jesus sacrificed for us. And so when you're ready, let's remember and let's partake and let's worship together. If you didn't grab communion on your way in, Jeff, I think, stand in the back. He can bring some to you. Just raise your hand and we'll bring it right to you at your seat. When you're ready, let's worship and partake together.